0: Section 47 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant Chapter 47 the military situation, plans for the campaign, Sheridan assigned to command of the cavalry, flank movements, forest at Fort Pillow, General Banks's expedition, Colonel Mosby, an incident of the wilderness campaign. When I assumed command of all the armies, the situation was about this the mississippi river was guarded from st louis to its mouth the line of the arkansas was held thus giving us all the northwest north of that river a few points in louisiana not remote from the river were held by the federal troops as was also the mouth of the rio grande east of the mississippi we held substantially all north of the memphis and charleston railroad as far east as Chattanooga, thence along the line of the Tennessee and Holston Rivers, taking in nearly all of the state of Tennessee. West Virginia was in our hands, and that part of Old Virginia, north of the Rapidan and east of the Blue Ridge, we also held. On the sea coast we had Fortress Monroe and Norfolk in Virginia, Plymouth, Washington, and New Bern in North Carolina, beaufort folly and morris islands hilton head port royal and fort pulaski in south carolina and georgia Fernandia, st augustine key west and pensacola in florida the balance of the southern territory an empire in extent was still in the hands of the enemy sherman who had succeeded me in the command of the military division of the mississippi commanded all the troops in the territory west of the alleghanies and north of natchez with a large movable force about chattanooga his command was subdivided into four departments but the commanders all reported to sherman and were subject to his orders this arrangement however ensured the better protection of all lines of communication through the acquired territory for the reason that these different department commanders could act promptly in case of a sudden or unexpected raid within their respective jurisdictions without awaiting the orders of the division commander in the east the opposing forces stood in substantially the same relations towards each other as three years before or when the war began they were both between the federal and confederate capitals it is true footholds had been secured by us on the seacoast in virginia and north carolina but beyond that no substantial advantage had been gained by either side battles had been fought of as great severity as had ever been known in war over ground from the james river and chickahominy near richmond to gettysburg and chambersburg in pennsylvania with indecisive results sometimes favourable to the national army sometimes to the confederate army but in every instance i believe claimed as victories for the south by the southern press if not by the southern generals the northern press as a whole did not discourage these claims a portion of it always magnified rebel success and belittled ours while another portion most sincerely earnest in their desire for the preservation of the union and the overwhelming success of the federal armies would nevertheless generally expressed dissatisfaction with whatever victories were gained because they were not more complete that portion of the army of the potomac not engaged in guarding lines of communication was on the northern bank of the rapidan the army of northern virginia confronting it on the opposite bank of the same river was strongly entrenched and commanded by the acknowledged ablest general in the confederate army the country back to the james river is cut up with many streams generally narrow deep and difficult to cross except where bridged the region is heavily timbered and the roads narrow and very bad after the least rain such an enemy was not of course unprepared with adequate fortifications at convenient intervals all the way back to richmond so that when driven from one fortified position they would always have another farther to the rear to fall back into to provision an army campaigning against so formidable a foe through such a country from wagons alone seemed almost impossible System and discipline were both essential to its accomplishment. The Union armies were now divided into nineteen departments, though four of them in the West had been concentrated into a single military division. The Army of the Potomac was a separate command and had no territorial limits. There were thus seventeen distinct commanders. Before this time, these various armies had acted separately and independently of each other, giving the enemy an opportunity often of depleting one command, not pressed, to reinforce another, more actively engaged. I determined to stop this. To this end, I regarded the Army of the Potomac as the center, and all west to Memphis along the line described as our position at the time, and north of it, the right wing, the army of the James under General Butler as the left wing, and all the troops south as a force in rear of the enemy. Some of these latter were occupying positions from which they could not render service proportionate to their numerical strength all such were depleted to the minimum necessary to hold their positions as a guard against blockade runners where they could not do this their positions were abandoned altogether in this way ten thousand men were added to the army of the james from south carolina alone with general gilmore in command it was not contemplated that general gilmore should leave his department but as most of his troops were taken, presumably for active service, he asked to accompany them, and was permitted to do so. Officers and soldiers on furlough, of whom there were many thousands, were ordered to their proper commands, concentration was the order of the day, and to have it accomplished in time to advance at the earliest moment the roads would permit, was the problem. As a reinforcement to the Army of the Potomac, or to act in support of it, the Ninth Army Corps, over 20,000 strong under General Burnside, had been rendezvoused at Annapolis, Maryland. This was an admirable position for such a reinforcement. The Corps could be brought at the last moment as a reinforcement to the Army of the Potomac, or it could be thrown on the sea coast south of Norfolk in Virginia or North Carolina, to operate against Richmond from that direction. In fact, Burnside and the War Department both thought the Ninth Corps was intended for such an expedition up to the last moment. My general plan now was to concentrate all the force possible against the Confederate armies in the field. There were but two such, as we have seen, east of the Mississippi River and facing north. The Army of Northern Virginia, General Robert E. Lee commanding, was on the south bank of the Rapidan, confronting the Army of the Potomac. The second, under General Joseph E. Johnston, was at Dalton, Georgia, opposed to Sherman, who was still at Chattanooga. Besides these main armies, the Confederates had to guard the Shenandoah Valley, a great storehouse to feed their armies from, and their line of communications from Richmond to Tennessee. Forrest, a brave and intrepid cavalry general, was in the West with a large force, making a larger command necessary to hold what we had gained in Middle and West Tennessee, we could not abandon any territory north of the line held by the enemy because it would lay the northern states open to invasion. But as the Army of the Potomac was the principal garrison for the protection of Washington even while it was moving on Lee, so all the forces to the west and the Army of the James guarded their special trusts when advancing from them as well as when remaining at them. Better indeed, for they forced the enemy to guard his own lines and resources at a greater distance from ours, and with a greater force. Little expeditions could not so well be sent out to destroy a bridge, or tear up a few miles of railroad track, burn a storehouse, or inflict other little annoyances. Accordingly. I arranged for a simultaneous movement all along the line. Sherman was to move from Chattanooga, Johnston's Army and Atlanta being his objective points. Crook, commanding in West Virginia, was to move from the mouth of the Gauley River with a cavalry force and some artillery, the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad to be his objective either the enemy would have to keep a large force to protect their communications or see them destroyed and a large amount of forage and provision which they so much needed fall into our hands siegel was in command in the valley of virginia he was to advance up the valley covering the north from an invasion through that channel as well while advancing as by remaining near Harper's Ferry. Every mile he advanced also gave us possession of stores on which Lee relied. Butler was to advance by the James River, having Richmond and Petersburg as his objective. Before the advance commenced, I visited Butler at Fort Monroe. This was the first time I'd ever met him, before giving him any order as to the part he was to play in the approaching campaign i invited his views they were very much such as i intended to direct and as i did direct in writing before leaving general w f smith who had been promoted to the rank of major-general shortly after the battle of chattanooga on my recommendation had not yet been confirmed. I found a decided prejudice against his confirmation by a majority of the Senate, but I insisted that his services had been such that he should be rewarded. My wishes were now reluctantly complied with, and I assigned him to the command of one of the Corps under General Butler. I was not long in finding out that the objections to Smith's promotion were well founded. In one of my early interviews with the President, I expressed my dissatisfaction with the little that had been accomplished by the cavalry so far in the war, and the belief that it was capable of accomplishing much more than it had done if under a thorough leader. I said I wanted the very best man in the army for that command, Halleck, was present and spoke up saying how would sheridan do i replied the very man i want the president said i could have anybody i wanted sheridan was telegraphed for that day and on his arrival was assigned to the command of the cavalry corps with the army of the potomac this relieved general alfred pleasanton it was not a reflection on that officer however for I did not know but that he had been as efficient as any other cavalry commander. Banks, in the Department of the Gulf, was ordered to assemble all the troops he had at New Orleans in time to join in the general move, Mobile to be his objective. At this time I was not entirely decided as to whether I should move the Army of the Potomac by the right flank of the enemy, or by his left. Each plan presented advantages. If by his right, my left, the Potomac, Chesapeake Bay, and tributaries would furnish us an easy hauling distance of every position the army could occupy from the Rapidan to the James River, but Lee could, if he chose, detach or move his whole army north on a line rather interior to the one i would have to take in following a movement by his left our right would obviate this but all that was done would have to be done with the supplies and ammunition we started with all idea of adopting this latter plan was abandoned when the limited quantity of supplies possible to take with us was considered. The country over which we would have to pass was so exhausted of all food or forage that we would be obliged to carry everything with us. While these preparations were going on, the enemy was not entirely idle. In the West, Forrest made a raid in West Tennessee up to the northern border capturing the garrison of four or five hundred men at union city and followed it up by an attack on paducah kentucky on the banks of the ohio while he was able to enter the city he failed to capture the forts or any part of the garrison on the first intelligence of Forrest's raid, I telegraphed Sherman to send all his cavalry against him and not to let him get out of the trap he had put himself into. Sherman had anticipated me by sending troops against him before he got my order. Forrest, however, fell back rapidly and attacked the troops at Fort Pillow, a station for the protection of the navigation of the Mississippi River, the garrison consisted of a regiment of colored troops, infantry, and a detachment of Tennessee cavalry. These troops fought bravely, but were overpowered. I will leave Forrest in his dispatches to tell what he did with them. The river was dyed, he said, with the blood of the slaughtered for two hundred yards." The approximate loss was upward of 500 killed, but few of the officers escaping. My loss was about 20 killed. It is hoped that these facts will demonstrate to the northern people that Negro soldiers cannot cope with Southerners. Subsequently, Forrest made a report in which he left out the part which shocks humanity to read at the east also the rebels were busy i had said to halleck that plymouth and washington north carolina were unnecessary to hold it would be better to have the garrisons engaged there added to butler's command if success attended our arms both places and others too would fall into our hands naturally these places had been occupied by federal troops before I took command of the armies, and I knew that the executive would be reluctant to abandon them and therefore explained my views. But before my views were carried out, the rebels captured the garrison at Plymouth. I then ordered the abandonment of Washington, but directed the holding of New Bern at all hazards. This was essential because New Bern was a port into which blockade-runners could enter. General Banks had gone on an expedition up the Red River long before my promotion to general command. I had opposed the movement strenuously, but acquiesced because it was the order of my superior at the time. By direction of Halleck, I had reinforced Banks with a corps of about 10,000 men from Sherman's command. This reinforcement was wanted back badly before the forward movement commenced. But Banks had got so far that it seemed best that he should take Shreveport on the Red River and turn over the line of that river to Steele, who commanded in Arkansas to hold instead of the line of the Arkansas. Orders were given accordingly and with the expectation that the campaign would be ended in time for Banks to return A.J. Smith's command to where it belonged and get back to New Orleans himself in time to execute his part of the general plan. But the expedition was a failure. Banks did not get back in time to take part in the program as laid down nor was Smith returned until long after the movements of May 1864 had been begun. The services of 40,000 veteran troops, over and above the number required to hold, all that was necessary in the Department of the Gulf, were thus paralyzed. It is but just to Banks, however, to say that his expedition was ordered from Washington and he was in no way responsible except for the conduct of it. I make no criticism on this point. He opposed the expedition. By the 27th of April, spring had so far advanced as to justify me in fixing a day for the great move. On that day, Burnside left Annapolis to occupy Meade's position between Bull Run and the Rappahannock. Meade was notified and directed to bring his troops forward to his advance. On the following day, Butler was notified of my intended advance on the 4th of May, and he was directed to move the night of the same day and get as far up to James River as possible by daylight and push on from there to accomplish the task given him. He was also notified that reinforcements were being collected in washington city which would be forwarded to him should the enemy fall back into the trenches at richmond the same day sherman was directed to get his forces up ready to advance on the fifth siegel was in winchester and was notified to move in conjunction with the others the criticism has been made by writers on the campaign from the rapidan to the james river that all the loss of life could have been obviated by moving the army there on transports. Richmond was fortified and entrenched so perfectly that one man inside to defend was more than equal to five outside besieging or assaulting. To get possession of Lee's army was the first great object. With the capture of his army, Richmond would necessarily follow. It was better to fight him outside of his stronghold than in it. If the army of the Potomac had been moved bodily to the James River by water, Lee could have moved a part of his forces back to Richmond, called Beauregard from the south to reinforce it, and with the balance moved on to Washington then too i ordered a move simultaneous with that of the army of the potomac up the james river by a formidable army already collected at the mouth of the river while my headquarters were at culpeper from the twenty-sixth of march to the fourth of may i generally visited washington once a week to confer with the secretary of war and president on the last occasion a few days before moving, a circumstance occurred which came near postponing my part in the campaign altogether. Colonel John S. Mosby had, for a long time, been commanding a partisan corps or regiment which operated in the rear of the Army of the Potomac. On my return to the field on this occasion, as the train approached Warrenton Junction, a heavy cloud of dust was seen to the east of the road, as if made by a body of cavalry on a charge. Arriving at the junction, the train was stopped and inquiries made as to the cause of the dust. There was but one man at the station, and he informed us that Mosby had crossed a few minutes before at full speed in pursuit of Federal cavalry. Had he seen our train coming, no doubt, he would have let his prisoners escape to capture the train. i was on a special train if i remember correctly without any guard since the close of the war i have come to know colonel mosby personally and somewhat intimately he is a different man entirely from what i had supposed he is slender not tall wiry and looks as if he could endure any amount of physical exercise he is able and thoroughly honest and truthful. There were probably but few men in the South who could have commanded successfully a separate detachment in the rear of an opposing army, and so near the border of hostilities, as long as he did, without losing his entire command. On this same visit to Washington, I had my last interview with the President before reaching the James River. He had, of course, become acquainted with the fact that a general movement had been ordered all along the line and seemed to think it a new feature in war. I explained to him that it was necessary to have a great number of troops to guard and hold the territory we had captured and to prevent incursions into the northern states. These troops could perform this service just as well by advancing as by remaining still, and by advancing, they would compel the enemy to keep detachments to hold them back, or else lay his own territory open to invasion. His answer was, oh, yes, I see that. As we say out west, if a man can't skin, he must hold a leg while somebody else does. There was a certain incident connected with the wilderness campaign, of which it may not be out of place to speak. And to avoid a digression further on, I will mention it here. A few days before my departure from Culpeper, the Honorable E.B. Washburn visited me there and remained with my headquarters for some distance south through the Battle of the Wilderness and, I think, to Spotsylvania. He was accompanied by a Mr. Swinton, whom he presented as a literary gentleman who wished to accompany the army with a view of writing a history of the war when it was over. He assured me, and I have no doubt Swinton gave him the assurance that he was not present as a correspondent of the press. I expressed an entire willingness to have him, Swinton, accompany the army and would have allowed him to do so as a correspondent Restricted, however, in the character of the information he could give. We received Richmond papers with about as much regularity as if there had been no war, and knew that our papers were received with equal regularity by the Confederates. It was desirable, therefore, that correspondents should not be privileged spies of the enemy within our lines probably mr swinton expected to be an invited guest at my headquarters and was disappointed that he was not asked to become so at all events he was not invited and soon i found that he was corresponding with some paper i have now forgotten which one thus violating his word either expressed or implied he knew of the assurance washburn had given as to the character of his mission i never saw the man from the day of our introduction to the present that i recollect he accompanied us however for a time at least the second night after crossing the rapidan the night of the fifth of may colonel w r rowley of my staff was acting as night officer at my headquarters a short time before midnight, I gave him verbal instructions for the night. Three days later, I read in a Richmond paper a verbatim report of these instructions. A few nights still later, after the first and possibly after the second day's fighting in the wilderness, General Meade came to my tent for consultation, bringing with him some of his staff officers. Both his staff and mine retired to the campfire some yards in front of the tent, thinking our conversation should be private. There was a stump a little to one side and between the front of the tent and the campfire. One of my staff, Colonel T.S. Bowers, saw what he took to be a man seated on the ground and leaning against the stump, listening to the conversation between Meade and myself. He called the attention of Colonel Raleigh to it. The latter immediately took the man by the shoulder and asked him, in language more forcible than polite, what he was doing there. The man proved to be Swinton, the historian, and his replies to the question were evasive and unsatisfactory, and he was warned against further eavesdropping. The next I heard of Mr. Swinton was at Cold Harbor. General Meade came to my headquarters saying that General Burnside had arrested Swinton, who at some previous time had given great offense, and had ordered him to be shot that afternoon. I promptly ordered the prisoner to be released, but that he must be expelled from the lines of the army not to return again on pain of punishment. End of section 47. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at J-O-C-C-L-E-V dot com.